COVID-19 now ranks as one of the deadliest pandemics in known history. Since the first reported cases in 2019, countries around the world have instituted lockdowns, quarantines, curfews, and vaccine mandates to stem its spread. But reported deaths have reached 5 million globally and continue to rise. Those fortunate to survive infection may face long-term health complications, of which we are only just beginning to understand. The effects of COVID-19 reach far beyond mortality triggering widespread economic and socio-political consequences. It is unsurprising to learn, after everything that has transpired in the past two years, that COVID-19 has had a detrimental effect on our mental health. This is Christine Scalora with the Oxford Comet. According to the Office for National Statistics, in June of 2020, one in five adults in Great Britain were likely to be experiencing some form of depression, doubling pre-pandemic figures. The latest data say that number is one in six. The CDC in the United States reported that the percentage of adults with recent symptoms of an anxiety or depressive disorder increased from 36 to 41% from August 2020 to February 2021, with the largest increase among adults aged 18 to 29. This also represents an increase compared to pre-pandemic rates. On today's episode, we will be exploring the factors behind these figures, discussing COVID-19's impact on our mental health and where we go from here. Our first guest, Professor Seamus Donnelly, spoke with us from his post as Discipline Head of Clinical Medicine at Trinity College Dublin. He is the editor of QJM, an international journal of medicine, which is published on behalf of the Association of Physicians of Great Britain and Ireland. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit about QJM? Okay, well, thanks, Christine. Um, Seamus Donnelly, I'm Professor of Medicine at Trinity College Dublin. I'm also editor of the Quarterly Journal of Medicine, or QJM. QGM is the official journal of the Association of Physicians of Great Britain and Ireland, which is one of the leading uh, medical academic societies, if you like, uh, in these islands. And the journal particularly focuses on translational medicine and bringing various disciplines together to answer pertinent clinical uh, problems. Um, we were founded in 1907 by Sir William Osler, so we've been around a little while. Uh, he was the first professor of medicine in Johns Hopkins, and when he founded both the association and the journal in 1907. He was professor of medicine at Oxford here in the UK. Great, thank you. Can you speak generally about the effects of COVID-19 on mental health? For example, have we seen an increase in diagnoses of mental illness or other signs of mental distress in the general public? Well, COVID, I mean, COVID-19, the whole pandemic has put significant emotional and physical stresses on a whole number of people globally, uh, individual patients who got the disease, their families, countries, economic you know, activity, et cetera. But globally, it's put a huge stress on, on, on individuals and communities. I mean, vulnerable populations would include, I, I'm an educator, I, I teach, I just come from lecture with my medical students and, you know, University students are one of the vulnerable population. Any age group is vulnerable, but university students in particular. My rite of passage was my first year in college, second year in college, and to see or to, to it all going online and limited social interaction, social isolation, uh, at a time when you're you know, emotionally finding yourself and maturing, that's a huge hit. And it's a huge hit that will last, unfortunately. And, and that, that COVID generation, that university generation, those first and second years, my heart goes out to them. I mean, there have been significant research in that group and in, and in general populations. But in, in, from the 
university perspective, it's, uh, you know, 60% are anxious, you know, pathoclinically satisfying the, di- you know, the, the criteria for anxiety, 40% depression versus low 20% in the general population. So, so significant stresses, emotional stresses that, that will last in that population and in the general population. I mean, elderly people socially isolated. So you've got the actual disease itself and the effects it has in the acute stages, but more chronically in the long COVID situation. And then you have the effects of national strategies, global strategies, which isolate people, you know, and then you've got isolated people that have the fear of the disease, fear of passing it on to other individuals. You know, if they have a natural tendency towards anxiety, depression, or psychological issues, that is exaggerated. Oh, it's a major problem, major problem, Christine, that unfortunately isn't going away anytime soon. So you've talked about several of these um, in terms of isolation, fear, changes in you know, how schools run and things like that. What are some other aspects of the pandemic that can negatively impact people's mental health? Well, just the fear, the fear of the, the virus, particularly in the early stage pre-vaccination, fear of contagion, the fear of getting it and, 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 and what will happen to me, the vulnerability of individuals, particularly if they're socially isolated to start with. The, the perception of danger then, you know, the media is highlighting always the critical care, the mortality, when in fact it's a, it's, it's a global pandemic if, if, if you don't have any pre-existing vulnerabilities and pre-existing diseases, then there is a risk, but the risk is not as much as the media initially might have portrayed. So there was this huge anxiety complex which fed into the population. And, you know, as a healthcare worker, so uh, our department led uh, the care of acute COVID in hospital, and now we, t- we look after the community, long COVID care pathways. But, you know, on a personal level, me on the front line looking after COVID, my big fear was that I would pass it on to my parents who were now in their 90s uh, or pass it to my family. Um, so that was a universal fear among healthcare. That was a principal fear for me and for, I'd say, every, if not most, healthcare workers, that they would take this, particularly in the early stages pre-vaccination, that they would pass it on to my... I didn't see my parents... Well, I didn't... I wasn't in the house for, you know, 18 to 20 months. I visited the back garden and shouted through an open door and my parents in the, in the, in the kitchen, uh, but it's not quite the same, you know? So, and, and they were socially isolated and, and my heart went out to them. And my mom and dad, you know, they're, they're good quality of life, but the memory's not the best. So they couldn't understand at times why I couldn't come into the kitchen and have a cup of tea. Um, so that, that was, you know, tough uh, for them and, and me. And it's the same for all healthcare workers that fear pre-vaccination that you would pass it on to others your neighbours, your family, friends, it was a huge fear. Um, and less or so that you'll get it yourself. Uh, that was, of course, a fear, but less or so. Um, so on a personal level, uh, the healthcare worker, and also globally, there was a huge fear factor, anxiety factor, which was lessened somewhat by the vaccination strategies that were unrolled or rolled out in, in, in the Western world. And now the boosters coming on stream for vulnerable people and healthcare workers and added protection. So, and, and then also the other, the other thing in relation to mental health is, is, is the financial economic pressures, you know, the hospitality industry globally was decimated for 18 months. You know, you worked in there and suddenly, you know, you have no income or, or income is drying up. That then feeds into that mental health stresses and strains. So you've all this tsunami, perfect storm, if you like, of factors which exacerbate and accelerate mental health problems in the community, which will be around, unfortunately, for, for I would suggest some time. Yeah, that all sounds very challenging and 
difficult, especially your personal experiences. Um, you've talked a bit about sort of the long-term effects you expect to see. Can you talk specifically about people who have developed, you know, long COVID symptoms where they're still experiencing the effects of the illness several months after their diagnosis? Yes. Yeah, so, so the definition within the UK or the European definition would be a persistence of disabling symptoms beyond 12 weeks or three months that can't be explained by any other diagnosis. And these are individuals that could have the disability at the beginning when they were symptomatic with COVID and it just persisted and maybe got worse. Or in fact, it could be asymptomatic individuals that the infection went away and, and two or three weeks later, suddenly they hit them with intense fatigue poor concentration, brain fog, et cetera, et cetera. So there are significant epidemiological uh, reports now of 700,000 people uh, up to nine, six to nine months follow-up, if you like. And it shows that it's a significant problem. It shows there's a big number out there. Some suggest disabling symptoms of up to 30% of people. Probably the rule of thumb is one in 10 of individuals, whether it be asymptomatic, symptomatic at home, or hospital-based population, you have a one in 10 chance that you will suffer these disabling persistent symptoms beyond three months. How long it will last, we don't know, you know, because it's, it's still, we're still learning so much about it. But we know from the SARS, which is a coronavirus back in 2003, which was a much smaller number of people, mainly predominantly in Asia, that several years on, a significant number of people were have, suffering significant disabling physical and emotional uh, problems. Um, so again, it's a, it's a problem that's going to be with us. And, and if you take a rule of thumb of one in 10 people, in the UK currently, we're about 9.5 million people that have been COVID positive, probably an underestimation, but let's say 10 million. Well, that's a million people that are suffering, many of which can't get back to work, many of which are brain fog, fatigue, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, all amplified, a significant proportion of which particularly hospital-based population, shortness of breath with respiratory, significant respiratory disabilities. It's a significant problem and it's the elephant in the room currently with regard to public, how will public health, how will community services, how will health services globally cope with this and how, what can they use imaginatively? Because one-on-one counselling for a million people in the UK currently is not practical. And if you multiply that by X in the States, or by 50, 60, 70,000 in Ireland, where I'm from, that's a big ticket item that we don't have the resources in counseling and psychiatry and respiratory infectious diseases to cope with that number. So we have to be imaginative. And, and what that, how that will pan out, I don't know. But technology, one of the things that COVID has taught us is how we can pivot and respond and accept very quickly new technologies. And, 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 you know, in relation to monitoring patients in the community, monitoring patients in hospital with regard to Zoom that we're using now and Teams and online facilities. So can we, can we use those new resources and acceptance by the global community, by patient individuals to provide appropriate care for a vast number of people that need it going forward? Yeah, that's really interesting. It seems there's sort of a kind of a mismatch between the need that we're experiencing for mental health services now and in to the future and what is sort of traditionally been available yeah. to people. Yeah. yeah. So, so for example, what has pre-COVID, what was being accepted within the NHS and with, within European health service, and I presume in the United States as well, is how 
um, modules online can support um, psychological and psychiatric care, mental health care of patients. It doesn't replace the individual consultation, but it supports. For example, if you were scheduled historically to have 12 sessions, it might mean that you could have six sessions with the individual counselor, uh, medical doctor, nurse, practitioner, whatever, and can be supported online yourself. So that means those individual practitioners can see more patients, you know? So that, that would be an example of how, you know, a simple technology uh, with modules that are focused on long COVID that are validated clinically and approved clinically by the regulatory authorities will be able to help with providing appropriate care for that magnitude of people. I guess sort of, are there public health policies and practices um, or even sort of government regulations and things that can better support mental health recovery like during and even after the pandemic? So in, in, in the context of uh, health priorities, in the context of health policy, um, in the context of providing care for a significant number of patients, there are certain um, countries that have significant investment in community health services, while there are other countries that perhaps do not have that significant investment. And I think those countries that do have an infrastructure that is community-based will be, be a, a, a better able to institute um, appropriate care programs for people in the community. So the NHS has a significant investment in the community in community-based care, primary care, community care. Uh, the United States may not in certain areas. So I think those that have that investment and that infrastructure in place will be better placed, if you like, to provide that community-based care with the help of online platforms, with the help of additional technology. So, uh, so that's where I think the investment and what's already there and what, 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 what will be helpful. So in, in our low, long COVID services, we don't have any specific treatments that are validated yet. So appropriate, large, multi-centered clinical trials that validate appropriate psychological support programs, uh, medical support programs. And as we understand or an enhanced understanding at a scientific cellular level, the, the drivers, the key drivers of different uh, subgroups of patients that are termed the umbrella of long COVID at the moment, as we understand the key drivers and then clinical trials that can augment or inhibit or, or realign those dysregulated pathways then we will have an appropriate care pathway, but we're not there yet. So at the moment, the most helpful thing for a long COVID patient that comes to my clinic, first of all, many of them are young females. 64% of our long COVID patients that attend me in the clinic are premenopausal women. The vast majority in that 30 to 40 age group. A lot of them have this palpitation, shortness of breath on climbing the stairs, and they're all got their Fitbits. So they come into me and say, my pulse rate goes up to 170 when I climb the stairs. And they've all read about myocarditis and health issues, which are very rare, but do occur in acute COVID or in the chronic stages, persistent inflammation in the heart. And they're worried they have that or the structural heart problems are going to have a heart attack or whatever. So the fact that we assess them and we show, yes, your heart rate is going that fast, but it's a sinus tachycardia. It's not irregular. It's not abnormal. It's a normal response to stress of the virus, which in previous viral, post-viral, is known that the majority of people over time, it goes away. And the structure of your heart is good and strong. That reassurance is half the battle currently. And then we bring our clinical psychologists in who, who analyze where the pressure points are. And if you've got anxiety, 
where the dam bursts and you're overwhelmed by anxiety and they teach you lessons to strengthen yourself and as soon as you feel yourself beginning to go down that slippery slope you're able to use these exercises to plug the dam if you like that's the two most important things at the moment that help us now as as the years go on six months a year go on we'll get more definitive uh, treatment programs we'll know much more scientifically what's going on and the drivers of so you know in this long COVID umbrella all these different people there will be subgroups of individuals whereby it's a specific pathway that causes x while in another group it's a different pathway that leads to long COVID, and there'll be different therapeutic bundles and care care pathways for different subgroups yeah that's very interesting to think about the relationship between people's you know physical health and their mental health in the context of a pandemic yeah so you've talked about healthcare practitioners you've talked about elderly folks and university students what are we seeing in terms of the mental health of young children you know preschool elementary school age children a particular vulnerable group a particular vulnerable group you know they're developing rapidly uh, both physically and emotionally I mean, there was a lot of literature in the context pre-COVID of how social media and the limiting of social interactions because of being on a phone or being on an iPad or being on whatever, a computer, and the future consequence of that with regard to emotional learning and um, society in general. So, so the COVID situation has compounded that with regard to social isolation, um, being away from their friends, um, and even more dependent on a screen in whatever shape or form uh, and even more i mean you know uh, on transport now you know you rarely see anybody eyeball to eye they're looking at their phone well imagine that in in a young formative three four five six seven eight year old you know that that limiting social interaction must have long-term consequences and then how do you overcome that now in in western europe uh, masks are compulsory for all those over 12. Uh, but in schools in my country, masks uh, are not mandatory in under 12s. That's just an individual government or national policy. It'll depend on government to government. But again, it was to do with the stimulation of talking to individuals and seeing their mouth in action and just that interaction ability of in those formative years. It was felt that in Ireland, certainly, that under 12s, you know, it wasn't compulsory to wear a mask. And it wasn't a political decision. It wasn't one side against another. It was just a practical decision. You know, it, it's, it's, and, you know, for the special needs grouping for children in general, the younger they are, the, the lack of, you know, the, the difficulty that they would have wearing a mask, how uncomfortable it would be, and maintaining that, you know, one teacher maintaining that in a class. And do you punish a child if they're not wearing a mask? Which, you know, so, so the, the way out was that in, in, my, in, in our jurisdiction, children at under 12 don't it's not compulsory to wear a mask yeah it's definitely interesting to see all of the just sort of ways that things are decided across different countries so what sort of research do you expect to be published about mental health and covid in the future do you expect any new approaches or innovations in the field to treat mental health issues caused by covid yeah i mean when you an when you analyze the epidemiology of long covid um, you see that from a symptomatic point of view, there are two specific clusters. And up to 60% of one cluster is these brain-related symptoms, which we've alluded to previously. And then another up to 20% are uh, respiratory-related or shortness of breath-related. And related to the brain-related, 
Um, I do feel that from a, a clinical care pathway point of view, there will be an accelerated approval process for the validation of online support uh, modules, let's put it that way, to strengthen individuals with regard to their ability to uh, control overwhelming fears, anxiety, and, and mental health-related symptoms. Uh, and they will be supportive to the standardized clinical care pathways. But that will be, I would see in three to six months, those validated, accelerated, approved by the reg available regulatory authorities in, in, in each region. Then what will come in kind of that six to 12 month time frame is we'll begin to understand from a brain perspective, from a cell and inflammatory biology perspective, what exactly does COVID do and how does it affect the brain, brain precisely? Uh, and then manifesting in these brain-related symptoms. And once we understand that with some clarity and some granularity, then we can talk about whether, you know, exercise programs, whether non-drug, if you like, related, whether exercise programs, physical therapy, uh, whether other uh, conventional uh, programs that, 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 that would help in relation to affecting these particular pathways that have been identified. And then at a later stage, maybe in a year or two, if things with the long COVID situation, we might have more specific pharmacotherapies and more specific for, for individuals to accelerate their recovery, to accelerate their recovery so that they can partake back in family life and the economic activity and social connectivity that's so important. So that, that's the sort of things I would say. I would see in the short term, we would, we would rapidly evaluate and approve technology-assisted uh, clinical care pathways, and then that will be followed by uh, a greater understanding at a scientific cellular level of why people, why an individual in one house with COVID and is, gets long COVID, the individual with the same genetic background doesn't, and a greater understanding of why that is. And then that will be followed by more specific focus therapies based on an enhanced understanding of what driving the disease or those symptoms in that particular individual a kind of a personalized medicine approach ultimately. This has all been very interesting. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Our second guest, Dr. John C. Markowitz, is a professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University and a research psychiatrist at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. He is the author of In the Aftermath of the Pandemic, Interpersonal Psychotherapy for Anxiety, Depression, and PTSD and he has spent decades studying the effects of psychotherapies and medications in the treatment of depression, anxiety, personality disorders, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Can you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm John Markowitz. I'm a professor of psychiatry at Columbia University Medical Center, and I'm a research psychiatrist at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. I spend most of my time doing outcome research in psychotherapy, often involving interpersonal psychotherapy, which is a time-limited treatment for depression and other conditions. And it led to my uh, writing a book published by Oxford Press called In the Aftermath of the Pandemic. Can you speak generally about the effects of COVID-19 on mental health? For example, have we seen an increase in diagnoses of mental illness or other signs of mental distress? Yeah, good question. You would expect something this bad would cause trouble and something that's this bad and has lasted this long. And indeed, it has. Uh, the rates of most psychiatric disorders have increased 
in the last uh, year and a half. There's more anxiety. There's more depression. There's more post-traumatic stress disorder. There is more substance misuse. There's some question about whether there's there have been more suicides, and one would imagine so, but those data are harder to, to, to demonstrate. So it's been a very bad time. So there's, there's a great need for, for treatment. Yeah, certainly. Um, so what aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic can negatively affect people's mental health? There are so many things. There, there have been so many losses that people have suffered. They've lost a sense of safety, of course, with, with the fear of infection and death from an initially completely untreatable virus. There's been a loss of jobs, of, of financial security. There have been a huge loss of life. In the U.S. alone, more than 750,000 people have died of COVID. And that's probably an underestimate. Around the world, more than 5 million people have died, and that's surely an underestimate. And that doesn't even address the morbidity of uh, illness, including long-term, long-haul COVID. So people have been really suffering. And another issue that comes up is with all these deaths, People have um, been struggling with, with losing people close to them. And that's been particularly awful because these are unnecessary deaths from the virus. And then on top of that, it's really hard to mourn. Mourning is a painful process under good circumstances. But if you're isolated by, by lockdown rules, you can't visit people in the hospital as they're dying. And you can't go to funerals in a normal way. You have Zoom funerals, which are just not the same thing. So people who struggle with mourning anyway, and it is a painful process, are more likely to develop what we call complicated bereavement, which is a form of depression. And it's partly because these losses are terrible to begin with, and then there's no proper way to, to uh, deal with the loss. We constructed a, a kind of behavioral checklist to look at risk factors for what makes people more likely to develop anxiety or depression symptoms. And there are really four questions we, we routinely ask people. One is, how much are you living in fear of COVID-19? How worried are you about it? Do you know people who have been infected? Do you know people who have died? how has it inhibited your activities? And obviously it's affected everyone, whether they've had COVID or not. A second question is, how, how much has it disrupted your routine? Because, and, and this is an interesting question, we all have a structure to our lives, which is familiar and comforting. And one of the casualties of COVID has been that that routine has been greatly disrupted. So a lot of people initially said, great, I don't have to commute to work. But it turns out that commuting to work actually serves a function to give you a chance to process what happened at home and what happened at work and to divide between the two. Uh, you can sort of debrief yourself en route. And, and that's important. And, and living in the same place and working in the same place, assuming you've kept your job, can initially seem convenient, but actually can be confusing and, and disorienting. And, and a lot of people, you know, have struggled with that. 
So the, we know with patients who have bipolar disorder that it's crucial to maintain some structure to their lives. And if they can't do that, if their sleep cycle gets disrupted, if their activity level gets disrupted, they're at much greater risk of getting either manic or depressed. It turns out that for everyone, even people who don't have bipolar disorder, losing that kind of daily structure is anxiety provoking and sometimes depressing. So that's two things fear of infection and disruption of routine. A third issue is social isolation. We all know that that uh, social support is really important. Having people you can turn to and rely on is a strength and a protection against every psychiatric disorder and some medical disorders. So if you're going through a hard time and you can turn to other people and say, let me tell you what a hard time I'm going through. You're likely to process the stress and feel that there are people who understand you and, and listen to you about it. If you don't do that, if you're isolated from other people, you're carrying around a lot of, of distress and pain, and it can feel like a terrible secret and a terrible burden. So one of the one of the terrible effects of the COVID pandemic has been the lockdowns and the separations that have isolated people from their usual social contacts. And I think that contributes greatly to developing anxiety and depression and everything else. The fourth area is, is social media use. And this is something we routinely question people about. Too much uh, uh, keeping up with the news to a point is, is great and you want to know what's going on, but too heavy an investment in social media. And I think particularly during fraught political times, turns out to be deleterious to your to your mental health too. So you've clearly identified a lot of challenges, but as you referenced earlier, there are some treatments and options. Can you tell us about interpersonal psychotherapy and how it can be used um, in response to the pandemic? Sure. Look, it's, this is a tough time. And, and part of what makes it tough has been that it, it won't go away, that, that just when you think there's going to be some relief, something new comes along, like the Delta variant, or there's just a report in the, in the newspapers in the U.S. that 80% of the deer in Iowa are infected with COVID. Now, how that happened is anyone's guess, but it's a, re an, a new animal reservoir of, of this virus where it can mutate. And it's, it's, you know, these things are worrisome. You never know what's next. So it's been hard to relax. Under these circumstances, some anxiety, some frustration, some uh, disappointment and discouragement is probably normal. And you don't want to pathologize that. And, and part of the, the battle is figuring out what, what, what's appropriate uh, negative feeling and what isn't. Interpersonal psychotherapy is one of many uh, psychotherapies, and it's one of relatively few psychotherapies that have been evidence tested in randomized controlled trials and shown to work for things. So there are other therapies certainly that can help people, and I don't mean to focus exclusively on interpersonal therapy, but the book I wrote is, is in large part about that. And the reason is that interpersonal psychotherapy, which has been shown to treat depression, PTSD, and anxiety disorders, focuses on how you're feeling and what's going on in your life and the connection between the two. And 
that's a very nice fit for what we're going through. A lot is going on in people's lives. It's very upsetting and people have trouble handling the emotions that, that arise. So medication can help relieve symptoms too, but this is not really a medication moment, I think so much as a psychotherapy moment. When you have real life problems to battle, you have to not only try to relieve symptoms, but, but really understand the dilemma you're in and figure out how to navigate it. And talking therapy is much more helpful for that than a pill is. And this psychotherapy in particular may be useful in, in a time when there's so many life events to disrupt your feelings and your life. So interpersonal therapy is time limited. It usually runs 12 or 14 weeks set in advance. It focuses on what is happening in your life right now and how is that affecting how you feel and how is the way you're feeling affecting how your life proceeds. And that approach is fairly simple. People understand it, people kind of like it. And even though they're feeling overwhelmed and often helpless and hopeless, they often can use this relatively brief treatment to resolve a life crisis and gain a sense of mastery over their situation and relieve their, their symptoms. So what specific clinical issues has the pandemic created and how can healthcare practitioners address these? There are a number. I mean, as I've already mentioned, there's the problem of social isolation that's getting a little bit better now that we have uh, vaccines. Uh, before that, I guess there were people who were, were socializing anyway, but it was not wise. But that's that remains a problem. How, how normal has life returned to being? How, how much can you socialize? Uh, in New York, Broadway theaters have just reopened and, and people are sort of nervous about it, but also relieved. So there's that, there's loneliness, uh, which, which is a killer. Loneliness, if, if you translate that to lack of social support, people feel on their own, dealing with a lot of, of life stressors and they do very poorly. And yet it's a hard time to make new friends or to date because because of the, the difficulties with COVID. Even as things sort of return towards normal, I wouldn't say too normal, the length of the pandemic is such that people now are, are at risk, I think, for developing agoraphobia, fear of going out and doing things. They've been, they've been locked up for so long that even what had been normal routine no longer seems normal and feels anxiety provoking. So, so these are all difficulties. On top of that, how do you get treatment? Usually you go to an office and see a therapist and that's become problematic too. And most therapists in, that I know are still seeing people remotely by teletherapy. That is a whole lot better than no treatment. It gives you access to, to getting treatment. And on the other hand, it's not quite the same. We're all kind of sick of Zoom at this point, I think, and yet, it's the safest way to proceed. In New York State, you can now see people in person by state regulation. If you are in an office with the windows opened and a HEPA filter and you're both vaccinated, and even then you have to wear masks, which complicates doing psychotherapy. It's nice to be able to see your therapist's face and to have your therapist be able to see yours. Teletherapy with for child treatment where 
children generally get play therapy on the floor with the therapist, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't really work at all. Group therapy is a little bit more complicated. If you have boxes on a screen with different people's faces as opposed to being in a room together. So teletherapy has been good, uh, but it raises all kinds of clinical issues. And, and we also don't know really how effective it is. Teletherapy had been around for a while, but, but for the most part, it had been telephone therapy and it had been restricted to the, to the treatment of people in remote areas who really couldn't get to a therapist geographically. And it all of a sudden wholesale, as of March 2020, people began doing video therapy for which the research evidence base is exceedingly thin. And it does seem to work, but we don't have good studies to, to demonstrate that. If, if you're a grown up and you're, and you're going through the pandemic, you can generally remember a time when there wasn't one. And it isn't happening during your formative years. If you are a child, this is an incredibly important time for social development and for development generally. And if your experience of life is the pandemic, what does that do to you? We have, we have no idea. As it is, the younger generation has ceased to make eye contact in favor of screen contact. People don't relate in this electronic generation the way they used to uh, in the pre-internet times. But we just have no idea what it means to miss kindergarten or to have remote kindergarten. What does that do to your social development 10 years later? We, we, we don't know, but it, it's a concern. Yeah, that's a, a very interesting point to consider. So what policies and practices can support mental health recovery after the pandemic? Well, let's hope there is an after the pandemic. The, the question is whether we're gonna have to live with this in some form for and for how long. We, we are going to have to live with this. The question is for how long and, and when will things truly get back to normal if they ever will. Healthcare practitioners can certainly be available either in person when that's safe or, or remotely through teletherapy. One, one thing that would help, I think, is that, that a good thing, if there's anything good that came out of the pandemic in the US, it's that until COVID-19, if you wanted to practice in another state, you had to get licensed in that state. So I, I practice in New York. Patients come in from Connecticut or used to come in from Connecticut and New Jersey, and they would drive in and I would meet with them in person, and that's fine. But if you want to treat somebody in New Jersey or Connecticut, you would have to get a New Jersey or Connecticut license. COVID-19 suspended those interstate restrictions. And that's been a boon because there are places without a lot of mental health professionals. And right now it doesn't matter. You can, you can just teleport in. So that's been a great thing. And the concern is how, uh, and the question is how long is that going to last? And will the states who wanna collect revenue uh, reimpose restrictions and say, not in my state unless you have a license here. So I would hope that one thing uh, that could be done would be to, to maintain the suspension of those laws 
and, and restrictions so that people can get expert treatment no matter where they live. Yeah, that seems like a really interesting policy change. Do you expect any new approaches or innovations in the field uh, to treat mental health issues caused by the pandemic? It would be nice to really study what's what has been happening to us and what's just hit us. One of one of the concerns I have is is that mental health treatment has always been underfunded. This has been a chronic problem in 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 the U.S. Some other countries do it better. There is no national health service, and even though it's the most expensive healthcare system in in the world in the U.S., it's it's inefficient. It's unfair. People with Cadillac policies do really well, and other people really may not. So there needs to be adequate funding to treat people because we know there are more disorders and there's more need. And the question is, can the government do that? And another problem is that the National Institute of Mental Health, which has supported the bulk of research in the US uh, and clinical research over the years, has in the last 15 years or so become almost purely interested in neuroscience. They, they want to solve the brain, and good luck to them. It's a complicated organ. So increasingly, funding has shifted away from clinical research to brain research. And the hope is that there will be some breakthrough that will lead to curing schizophrenia and depression and everything else. But that actually seems fairly unlikely since these are complicated disorders and thus far years and years and millions of dollars have really yielded pretty pictures of the brain some knowledge of neurocircuitry but no clinical breakthroughs at all and it looks like it will be that way for the foreseeable future and yet at this point the national institute of mental health is funding almost no clinical research it's scandalous. And here we have a pandemic, which is not due to a gene. It's it's due to a, a virus with social consequences. And the, the way the NIMH funding is set up does not address this at all. So it, this would be a wonderful time to look at what are the effects of the pandemic on mental health in a, in a broader way than is currently being funded. What are appropriate treatments for people under this kind of chronic stress? and shifting expectations and multiple losses. And thus far, the National Institute of Mental Health has, has really done very little that anyone can see. So hopefully that will change, but I'm not overly optimistic. As the pandemic continues, what do you recommend for people who might be struggling with some of the things you mentioned earlier? Yeah, I, I have the feeling I've been a little gloomy in, in this presentation, and, and uh, there, is there are certainly things to be gloomy about, but there's also hope. And I should emphasize, most people are, are resilient. Most people will not, they will feel anxious, they will feel down at times, they will certainly feel frustrated. Most people probably don't develop psychiatric disorders that we would call an anxiety disorder or depression. And you can increase your chances of not developing one of those disorders by dealing with some of the issues that I've, I've mentioned. One is try to establish a routine. It's good to have a structure to your day. Another is 
reach out to other people. Don't get too isolated. And this is a hard time, but it is starting to normalize a little bit and it's easier to reach out to other people and it's really important. So everyone is having a rough time. It's okay to talk about it. And the more you can do that, the more supported you're likely to feel. Uh, you're not dealing with it all on your own. So that is, is general advice. And don't watch too much social media. Keep your distance from that because at a certain point it goes from being interesting to being destructive. And, and if none of that works, there are therapists who, who um, are getting experienced in dealing with some of these issues. Well, thank you for sharing that advice and your perspective with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for inv inviting me to this interview. We want to thank our guests, Professor Seamus Donnelly, editor of QJM, and Dr. John C. Markowitz, author of In the Aftermath of the Pandemic, for joining us on today's episode. Please check out our show notes on the OEP blog for an excerpt from each of our guests' publications, along with a suggested reading list that provides even more context for understanding the effects of the pandemic on our mental health. New episodes of the Oxford Comment will premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Be sure to follow OUP Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. While you're at it, please do subscribe to the Oxford Comment wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. Lastly, we want to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 67 was produced by Stephen Philippi, Megan Schaefer, Victoria Sparkman, and me, Christine Scalora. Thank you for listening.